From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Bichette's in Kids. Even with our current treatments, the outcome really still is guarded, and we do see this in kids, in people of every age and ethnicity. First this. As Seen From Here reaches ophthalmologists in 98 countries, transfers more than half a terabit of podcasts every month, but the potential audience is much larger. Please tell your colleagues about this free resource, Flattening the Ophthalmic World. And while you're at it, let your residents and fellows know about Open Ophthalmology, a free basic science video podcast, already a force in ophthalmic education with 1,800 viewers watching 6,000 video lectures every month. Information wants to be free. Help me give it away. Bichette's disease is a severe, recurrent, multi-system inflammatory disease with a characteristic presentation and a characteristic demographic. But today's conversation goes one step beyond that, because today we speak about Bichette's in children. Deborah Goldstein, director of the Uveitis Service at the University of Illinois at Chicago, has been a frequent guest on a scene from here. I can think of no one better to tackle this difficult topic. Debbie, welcome back to a scene from here. What are the clinical characteristics of Bichette's disease? Um, Bichette's is a systemic disease that has frequent ocular manifestations. So there are systemic features, including oral and genital ulcers, skin lesions, arthritis, uh, and neurologic findings. And then in terms of the eye, Bichette's can result in both anterior and posterior uveitis. So the classic finding that we all read about in the front of the eye is the hypopion. And the hypopion in Bichette's is a little different than the hypopion that we see with HLA-B27 disease, for example. It is described as shifting. And that what that refers to is that there's not a lot of fibrin in the eye. So despite the hypopion, the eye is fairly quiet. So the cells have settled at the bottom of the eye, but they're not held in place by, um, by fibrin so that if the patient were to shift their head to the side, for example, we could shift the hypopion over to the side. Or if we shake the patient's head up, we can often disperse some of the hypopion like a snow globe. Um, so that's kind of the exciting front of the eye picture with Bechet's disease, although this really isn't what our big problem is. Patients don't go blind from the anterior segment manifestations of Bechet's. The posterior segment manifestations are what are more serious and that can result in permanent visual loss. And the most common posterior segment finding that we see is retinal vasculitis. And this is a particularly arteritis in contrast to the disease we see, for example, with um, sarcoidosis, which is frequently a phlebitis. What are the diagnostic criteria for Bichette's disease? What do you need to make the diagnosis? So most people are familiar with two sets of criteria the Japanese criteria, and the newer, although still not new, international study group criteria. And um, I'm going to describe what those criteria are because that's what's used most frequently now, and it's a much more simple um, set of criteria. And in fact, in our study, we only included data on patients who met the international study group criteria. Um, So those criteria are that the patient has to, by definition, have recurrent oral AFI. So they get recurrent oral ulcers, and then at least two other features. And these can be recurrent painful genital ulceration, and this is ulceration that heals with scarring, or there can be skin lesions, and the most 
uh, common one would be erythema nodosum, included in this set of criteria is a positive pathology test and then eye findings, anterior or posterior uveitis. Most of us don't do the pathology test, however, um, but this is included in the ISG criteria. People with Bichette's tend to come from certain parts of the world, right? They sure do. Bichette's is most common, and this is actually really interesting, it's most common in those countries that lined the old Silk Route, um, which refer to the trade routes between the Arab world and the Orient. And in fact, um, Bichette's disease has also been called Silk Route disease. So we see it most commonly in patients who come from Turkey, Greece, Asia, and Middle Eastern countries. Debbie, what's known about the etiology of Bichette's? Well, we know that there is a genetic risk, and this is conferred by the HLA-B51 allele. However, we also know that this can't be the whole story. We know that there are populations with a high prevalence of HLA-B51, for example, Native Canadians, but with almost no Bichette's disease. And as well, the majority of patients in the world who are HLA-B5 or B51 positive don't develop Bichette's disease. Overall, 8% of the world's population is B51 positive, and the majority don't get Bichette's. Um, as well, up to 30 or even 50% of Bichette's patients are HLA-B51 negative. So we know that HLA-B51 confers a genetic predisposition, but it can't be the whole story. And I think there's still a lot that we don't know about the etiology. It may be that there are infectious triggers to Bichette's disease that initiate and maybe even perpetuate the inflammation. We know that other HLA diseases have infectious triggers. For example, um, the HLA B27 disease reactive arthritis that we used to know as Reiter syndrome, we know has infectious triggers such as salmonella and chlamydia. So it may be that this is another HLA-associated disease that has infectious triggers. In fact, the two physicians who initially described the disease, and this was in the 1930s, Bichette and I can never pronounce his name, Adamantiatis, both postulated that the disease had an infectious etiology. So it's likely that with Bichette's disease, as with many other conditions, there's no single etiology. It may be that the HLA-B51 allele or even genes that are closely linked with this region, as well as environmental triggers, both play a role. Now, having said that, is there a value to doing laboratory testing for Bichette's patients? Well, I think there is still value. I think that if you find the HLA-B51 that is positive, you can kind of add that to something supporting your diagnosis. If it's negative, it doesn't rule out Bichette's disease. And if it is positive, it doesn't mean the patient has Bichette's disease, but it is an interesting test to order. Other things that are important are to rule out diseases which can cause a similar picture. So, for example, I obtain an, an FTABS or other specific treponemal test for every patient with ocular inflammation, not just Bechet's disease, because we know that syphilis is the great mimicker. So while patients with Bechet's disease may have retinal vasculitis, panuveitis, the same picture can be caused by syphilis. So I obtain an FTABS on all these patients. Um, I don't do a pathogen test. We found in our patients that this is not helpful and we don't perform it anymore. And in fact, it's rarely positive in patients from the United States, the UK, and Europe. And even in countries in which it's been described as being positive, for example, Turkey, it's only positive in 5 to 15% of patients. 
So my workup would include ruling out other diseases such as syphilis, as well as an HLA-B5, which is another piece of the puzzle, but not able in and of itself to rule in or rule out the condition. Now you mentioned the pathogy test. Can you explain what the pathogy test is? Sure. It's a nonspecific hypersensitivity reaction to needle prick. So you can take a sharp sterile needle, a 22 or 24 gauge needle, and prick the skin. And the test is positive if there's a formation of a sterile erythematous papule that's at least 2 millimeters 48 hours later. So you prick the skin, um, bring the patient back, and take a look and see if there's a papule. And as I said, this isn't done in the United States, probably in part because it's really inconvenient to do a test where you have to do a skin prick and then read it 48 hours later, but I think mostly because it's just not positive in our patient population. At what age does Bichette's typically present? Bichette's can present at any age, but it's most commonly active in the second to the fourth decade, although as we saw, it does occur in children. Debbie, what was the objective of your study? The objective of our study was to describe Bichette's disease in pediatric patients, so looking at the prevalence, demographics, course, and prognosis in pediatric and adult patients in the American Midwest. We had initially designed this to look at kids, but it didn't really make sense to look at kids in a vacuum, so we compared them to adults as well. There's really little that's published on kids with Bechette's, particularly there's nothing, or almost nothing in North America. So we wanted to look at the American Midwest and see, do we see this disease in kids and how do these kids do? Now, can I get you to describe the design of your study? It was a retrospective case series, so a retrospective observational study. And what we did was review the records of patients that we saw at our institution from 1973 to 2007 and pulled out those who were diagnosed with Bechette's disease. Then from there, we analyzed only those who met the international study group criteria, um, patients who had had at least one month of follow-up and patients whose charts we could find. We then classified patients as pediatric if their disease had presented and actually been diagnosed before the age of 16. And again, we looked at demographics, clinical presentation, workup, treatment, and clinical course. Is childhood Bichette's disease just the young tail of a larger bell curve, or does it represent a separate pathology? Yeah, that's a great question. My hunch is that it's just the left side of our bell curve. But this study certainly wasn't large enough to conclude either way. Certainly, we had clinical findings that were the same in kids and adults, both in terms of systemic disease and eye disease, and outcomes that were pretty similar. So I'd I'd have to guess that there's no magic about the age 16, and that children and adults with Bechette's have pretty similar disease. How is Bechette's treated, both in adults and in children? We treat anybody with retinal vasculitis and Bechette's with immunosuppressive therapy. So these patients have really a potentially blinding disease. We don't tend to waste a lot of time playing around with drops or um, local therapy. So patients are initially started on oral prednisone, but that's not a reasonable option for long-term management. But because it's often blinding, we need to find other therapies, so we usually use fairly aggressive immunosuppressive therapy. Um, The other reason to do that is there are systemic comorbidities, which can be very severe in the absence of adequate immunosuppression. Cyclosporin is a reasonable first choice of therapy um, after prednisone, but we often find this is inadequate, and our patients often require biologic agents, um, such as the TNF inhibitors Remicade, for adequate disease control. In the study, the treatments used really varied because this data was collected 
looking back over a more than 30-year period. So prior to the advent of the TNF inhibitors, for example, we used a lot of alkylating agents, which we tend to use a lot less now. And then the question is, how long do you treat the patients? And this is always the question with chronic disease. Once disease is quiescent in our Bechet's patients, we usually try to keep them on stable therapy for at least two years before we try to taper. And this is a little different than my usual protocol for chronic disease, where after one year of complete disease quiescence on therapy, I'll try to back off on therapy. But because this inflammation is so severe and so difficult to control, I'll usually require two years of complete quiescence before I'll try to even slowly back off on therapy. Debbie, what were your findings, your results? Okay, well, there's a whole lot of rather boring numbers, but I'll try to summarize it. Um, We saw almost 6,000 new patients during that time period, and only 103 patients carried a clinical diagnosis of Bichette's disease. So I think that that in and of itself is interesting. It supports the concept that Bichette's disease is really not that common in North America. And then... um, I shouldn't say this, but maybe because I work at a state institution, 56 cases did not have available medical records, um, and we excluded eight others because they had less than one month of follow-up. And then since we also excluded patients diagnosed with prior criteria for Bechet's disease, we were only able to analyze 33 patients, and of these, only four were children. And in general, what we found is that the disease was more common in males, both in children and in adults. The most common initial systemic complaint was oral ulcers, again, both in children and adults. The majority of patients in both age groups had bilateral disease, and the most common disease that they had in the eye was panuveitis with retinal vasculitis. And again, this is kids and adults. In our patients, not everyone was tested for HLA-B5 or the subtype B51, but only 50% of the tested patients or patients in whom we had available results only 50% were HLA-B5 positive. For the most part, patients maintained the visual acuity that they presented with when we looked at them at three years. So if they presented with worse than 2200 vision, um, some got better and some stayed the same, but pretty much patients stayed the same. So if they presented with good visual acuity, they maintained it, but those who presented with poor vision did not really improve that much. I think that what we saw was really that the clinical presentation was really similar Um, between kids and adults, although the numbers were really too small to compare them. How long was the delay in diagnosis in the two groups, and what was the reason for the delay? So in our study, there was an average delay of about one year in children and about a year and a half in adults between the time that their uveitis started and their disease was diagnosed. So that doesn't mean between the time they first presented with their oral ulcers, but really from the time that they developed uveitis to the time they were diagnosed, it was between a year and 1.8 years. And in some cases, this is because the kids or the adults didn't meet the diagnostic criteria. So for example, I could have had a patient with retinal vasculitis and panuveitis that looked like Bechet's disease that I felt was Bechet's disease, but they didn't have oral ulcers. And since by definition, using the ISG criteria, we need oral ulcers, we couldn't diagnose the patient until they met the criteria. But in other cases, patients were referred with long-standing disease, and I think the problem was just an inability to recognize the disease. We don't live in an area where Bechet's disease is common, and I think that an ophthalmologist in Turkey who sees a lot more Bechet's disease than we do would be much quicker to make the diagnosis. But 
in a country where it's not that common, and added to that in an age group, the children, where it's not that common, I think people sometimes just don't think of the disease. What is the role of chlorambucil therapy? Well, you know, I think that's a great question, and I, I know I keep saying that. Um, because if you look at this study, you see that four out of the four patients who were pediatric were treated with chlorangucil, but that should not, and any, by any stretch of the imagination, be taken to support the use of chlorangucil as a first-line therapy in these kids. Much of that data was obtained way before there were any other treatments for Bichette's disease. So basically, we had the option of using long-term oral prednisone, which we know has horrible side effects in children, including growth retardation, or using other agents. So chlorambucil was used early on in the series, much earlier. Now we really don't tend to use it very often. What we tend to do is use the TNS inhibitors, and then we'll resort to using chlorambucil in either patients who can't obtain them, and this is a very real problem because the drugs are extraordinarily expensive, um, patients who don't tolerate them, or patients who have failed them. So we really reserve alkylating agents in our practice now for patients who have failed other therapies. So, you know, one of the things that we worry about with chlorambucil, although in another um, couple of publications of ours we've shown really good efficacy, is a long-term risk. And one of the big risks is the risk of sterility, which is obviously a problem in a child. Um, in an older patient in whom we're going to use chlorambucil, in a male we can... Um, talk about fertility preservation, um, they can do sperm banking. And in females, there's all kinds of options available. Um, we can stimulate the patient, or not we, but the uh, reproductive endocrinologist can stimulate the patient and we can obtain eggs, which can either be frozen or can be fertilized and frozen. Uh, um, in kids, this is obviously not an option. Now, we have found that kids have less effect on fertility when they're treated when they're young compared to when they're treated around, um, around puberty. So they're less likely to be affected, but it's still a very big risk. It's a very real risk. And the other thing is the risk of late malignancy. Um, we have not seen in any of our patients with um, 10 to 20 years of follow-up by now the development of late malignancy, but it is very real. It is a real risk, and it has been reported in a lot of other series. So we worry about that with chlorambucil. Um, there are a different set of risks with the TNF inhibitors. I mentioned the cost, which is prohibitive in a lot of patients. But there's also the very real risk of development of malignancy and infection. And, in fact, we need to rule out tuberculosis in any patients before we start um, TNF inhibitor therapies. And there have been reports of deaths in patients treated with TNF inhibitors in whom there was not clinically evident or not evident at all um, pre-existing tuberculosis. So patients can die of disseminated tuberculosis. And in fact, the relative risks for um, severe infection resulting in hospitalization or death or the development of late malignancy is two to three times um, in patients treated with TNF inhibitors. So they're extremely effective, but we don't take their use lightly. Debbie, how do your findings jibe with those of prior studies? So um, one thing we did find is that Bichette's disease is not that common and particularly not common in kids, and this does jibe with other studies. Um, in our patients, retinal vasculitis was by far the most common finding, and this is higher than some other series. There were a couple of other differences between us and other series. Um, in certain series, the most common complications resulting in loss of vision was optic atrophy, and we really didn't find that. Um, what we found in our patients that the most common cause of visual loss was maculopathy rather than optic neuropathy or optic 
atrophy. And I'm not sure whether this is just because of differences in treatment, differences in presentation, or really just because of fairly small numbers in all series. We found common complications among kids, um, high IOP, cataract, and epiretinal membrane, and that's pretty similar from studies found in Turkey. We were at the lower end of the range in terms of HLA positivity. We only had 50% of our patients who are HLA positive. But if you look overall at the series, it's been reported anywhere from 40 to 82%. So it's the lower end, but still within range. One of the things that was different in our patient populations is that studies from endemic areas, patients very often had a family history. So a family history of Bechet's disease or a family history of recurrent painful oral aphi. And we really didn't find that. In fact, we only had one child who had a history of someone in the family having aphthi. And I think that really reflects the fact that in our patients in the American Midwest, we're not, we're not in an endemic area. We don't have a very high prevalence of the disease. And I think that goes back to what I said earlier in terms of why the disease is diagnosed later in our patients or why there is a delay because, in fact, it wasn't diagnosed later than in other series. But some of the delay need, may be because we're just not thinking of the disease um, other differences, I think, involved testing. We just don't do pathology testing, so we really couldn't compare that with other series. In terms of treatment, again, we can't really compare with other series. I think that one of the things is that, you know, we know the visual prognosis is guarded, and that we see across series. So I think that this paper doesn't provide any striking new insights into the disease, but it does remind us that the disease occurs in people of all ethnic backgrounds. We had Caucasian patients, African-American patients, East Indian patients, Hispanic patients. We saw this in patients who did not come from countries lining the old Silk Route. There is migration, genotypic migration. So we see this in all patients, and that even though we're not an endemic area, we need to remember Bechet's disease in the differential diagnosis. And I think that that's the most important part of this paper. I think that the numbers are really too small to conclude that there's any difference between children and adults, but it does remind us it's a potentially blinding disease. Even with our current treatments, the outcome really still is guarded, and we do see this in kids, in people of every age and ethnicity. Now, besides vigilance, as you just mentioned, are there any other recommendations that you have for clinicians? Well, I guess that would be just that the disease really is potentially devastating. And often we see patients who've been treated with topical steroids, and then we spent a lot of time with maybe a periocular injection or two or a little low-dose prednisone. And these patients can get vascular occlusions, they can get ischemia, and the outcome could be really devastating. So that once we make the diagnosis of Bechet's disease, I think we need to understand that the patient is going to require fairly aggressive immunosuppressive therapy. And another thing I'd like to remind clinicians, because I have this problem myself, is that chronic disease is chronic. And it sounds obvious, but this is really a problem to us treating ophthalmologic disease in general and inflammation in particular. And I think it's very frustrating for every patient with chronic disease, particularly the ones I see um, with uveitis, and every doctor treating ocular inflammatory disease to recognize that unless there's a distinct infectious etiology, we aren't curing anything. So that the patients may be on long-term therapy and they need to understand that, that all I'm doing is modifying their inflammation. I'm trying to suppress their inflammation so they don't get damaged, but I'm not curing anything. 
And I think that's extremely frustrating for patients to know that I can't tell them how long they're going to require treatment. I can't tell them why they have their disease. I can't tell them when they're going to go away. And all I can do is keep treating them until the disease, for whatever reason, decides to go into remission. And I I know that that's really frustrating to other clinicians because I very often get referrals, not in the case of Bechet's disease, but other inflammatory diseases because a patient can't be tapered off of their medications. So I think that one of the points I want to get across is the concept of chronicity. Debbie Goldstein, thank you so much. Can't wait to have you back on. It was my pleasure. You know I like to do this. Deborah Goldstein is Associate Professor of Ophthalmology and Director of the Uveitis Service and Ocular Aid Service at the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at the University of Illinois at Chicago in Chicago, Illinois. Her paper, Uveitis Associated with Pediatric Bichette Disease in the American Midwest, appears in the December 2008 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Goldstein or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.